0: Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter two. We're, we're starting a new subseries today. We've been using this theme of renewal or living the renewed life all year. And throughout the year, after using Romans as that primary guide, we've taken these different uh, areas of focus and had these little sub-series. We, we did one on the renewed self and looked at Ruth and Naomi and their story. We did one on the renewed family, uh, looking at Abraham and Sarah. And now we're starting the renewed church. And we're gonna use the book of Acts As a guide, we're going to look at a lot of different stories in the book of Acts that really describe what the renewed church looks like and how it functions. Uh, We're going to look at some of the stories with uh, Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi, just to name a few. But today is more or less an introduction to that series, and so we're we're going to be looking at one particular passage of scripture that really helps define what makes the church unique. Right? What makes it distinctive in particular? Like, what is it that makes it um, something different from the rest of the world? And that's really what communities do, correct? Like, if you think about all the different expressions of community that we have in life, every expression of community at some point or another tries to articulate to the world around us this is why we're different, right? This is what makes us distinctive. I mean, so, think about like neighborhoods, for example. In some situations, neighborhoods are going to have unique street signage. They're going to name their subdivision. They may even have like a gated community, right? They're going to have all these different things that say this neighborhood is unique. We see it with schools, right? Schools are going to create uh, ways that they can articulate these distinctive qualities. Well, we, we focus on fine arts. We focus on STEM, right? We're going to have these colors. We're going to have this mascot. This is what our community is all about. Cities do it. Right? Cities will say, well, we have these things that we can offer if you live here. We've got Bass Hall. We've got TCU. We're the Panther City. There are all these little distinctive qualities that we often try to identify to really accentuate what makes a community unique. And that's especially true for the church. Right? The, the church does the same thing. This is God's design for community, right, is to gather the people of faith. And to be able to allow the people of faith to say, this is why we're different from the rest of the world. This is why we are distinct. If you were to try to find a positive definition for that word distinct, uh, one way that I've defined it before is I've I've taught on this passage on a couple occasions is to say it's to be unquestionably exceptional. Exceptional. And I love that definition of, of distinctiveness. And when we especially apply it to the life of the church and what does it mean to be a part of the church community, it, it, we should desire a distinctiveness that makes others look in and say, that's unquestionably exceptional. And more often than not, the way that you, you do that is by understanding what it is that makes us a community. Right? What it is that we rally around, and that's what we're going to look at today. Acts chapter 2 is going to set the tone for what we see in the rest of the book of Acts, right? in all these different examples in these different cities. And, and so what we're going to look at today is going to kind of set the tone for the rest of the series. And as we get ready to read this well-known passage of Scripture, let me just quickly remind you of what's transpired in the book of Acts up to this point. Jesus has been crucified, buried, resurrected, According to 1 Corinthians 15, he's appeared to more than 500 people over a span of 40 different days, many of whom at that time, when Paul wrote the letter to Corinth, they were all still alive, meaning you could actually go talk to people that had seen the risen Jesus. Okay, so this wasn't just some fairy tale, like there were eyewitness accounts. Jesus had authenticated his resurrection, and after it was nearing that time towards the ascension, he comes to his disciples and he says, now I want you to wait, wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when that happens, you are then going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so the opening pages of the book of Acts, right, written by Luke, is this waiting. And the disciples are waiting for that power to come upon them. The Holy Spirit then indwells within them, fills their hearts, and they begin to speak the word of God with great boldness. And people are marveling at the manifestation of the Spirit of God being poured out on these people, and they're wondering what is happening. And so Peter stands up and offers the explanation. And in his explanation, we have the first true sermon on the resurrected Jesus that's captured in Scripture And and Peter goes on to explain that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. And the crowd responds, what then should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. This is for your children and all those who are far off. And 3,000 were added to their number that day. And the church was born. A distinct community came together, a community that was unquestionably exceptional, exceptional. And the very next lines that we find in the scripture define this community. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let's read together. Verses 42 through 47. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All right, so I love this passage of Scripture, and when you, when you look at the book of Acts as a whole, the, the overarching theme, theme is the theme of salvation, Right, That essentially what Luke is trying to explain in his two-volume work between his gospel and the book of Acts is that Jesus achieves the salvation, and then the responsibility of the church is to continue to declare that salvation to the ends of the earth. Right, And so that's kind of the fundamental identity of the church. That's the main responsibility. And so one of the things I want us to have in mind as we move into this series, and in particular consider this passage today, is that church is not a place where you just simply come and ponder about Jesus, right? Like, you do that, but you do more than that. It's not a place where you just simply come and reflect upon this man and his teachings, right? We've been put to work. We've been commissioned to declare the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. That is our responsibility. And so what makes us distinct is, is that task that's been given to us. And so when you look at uh, that theme of salvation and that we have been entrusted to declare that message, you get to Acts 2, 42 through 47, and Luke begins to describe kind of the distinctive markers that allowed the church to do that. And and so when I read through these verses, verses 42 through 47, uh, I tend to break it into two broad categories, right? That how this community was distinct in both what they did and who they were. And that's going to be what we quickly cover this morning. And I'll say this on the front end here, that we've done the deep dive into these verses before. Like we, we broke them down like a verse or two at a time and went through a whole series with it. So if you want that sort of teaching and exploration of the text, we've got that in our sermon archives. We can give that to you. You can go back and find it. Today is a review, right? It's just a review so that we can use it to transition into this series. And so I want us to consider it through those broad categories, Right, what made this community distinct first and foremost in what they did, right, and then in who they were. And the overarching kind of verb that really sets the tone for these particular verses is that word that we've grown to know and love throughout the course of this year it's that word devotion, right? It says it right there at the very beginning they devote, excuse me, devoted themselves. And so this community is marked by devotion, right? And that's that. That same idea that works so well with what we saw in Romans 12, right? When we introduced the theme of the renewed life, the renewed people, that what we saw is that those key characteristics are marked by devotion, discernment, and delight. And so having that that heartfelt commitment, that faithfulness, that single-minded fidelity to something, holding fast to something, that's devotion. And so one of the things that I want us to keep in mind as we head into this series is that the church is, is a place where people are to come devoted Right, to be marked with that sort of faithfulness and that devotion. Church is not something that you just affiliate with. Right? It, it's not a place that you just kind of attend. Like you're, you're devoted. And devotion is not necessarily marked in how often you're here or in what committees you're involved in, but it's a devotion to the task that collectively as one body, we understand we have been entrusted to share the message of the saving work of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. That's what we're devoted to. And we're going to do everything we can to pursue it. And so understand that these descriptions are all tied to that mindset of devotion. And so what are the things that they're devoted to? This is what they did. The first is teaching, the apostles' teaching. A good reminder that when we gather together, what needs to make us distinct is to understand the teachings of Jesus and the impact that those teachings have on our life. Our lives should look different, right? That's, that's part of what we've been saying all year, that when I fix my eyes on Christ and I truly see him as author and perfecter, then I should be molded and changed and look different because I understand what he has taught and that I have been taught not just to consider those teachings but to obey them, right? So I'm gonna be devoted to the apostles' teaching. We in this church, that means we wanna be biblically guided in everything that we do. When we gather together for Sunday morning, whether it's in, in, in worship or it's in smaller groups or in classes, that we're going to be opening up the scripture together because we're devoted to his teaching. We're devoted not just to scripture, but to the fellowship. Now this is an interesting description as well, because uh, if you read it just kind of casually, uh, my initial impression is that that means you should just kind of be devoted to, to relationships, right? to having a chance to kind of hang out and build community with other people. But when you look at it in the Greek, uh, you find a a definite article that precedes the word fellowship. So another way to translate it would be they are devoted to the fellowship. And what a lot of scholars interpret that to mean is that this was referencing specifically the body of Christ, right? To understand that something new had been forged and had been made. Something new was coming together. This, This common identity in people that saw Jesus as Lord. It was the church, it was the fellowship, right? And so part of what we need to see is that our devotion is absolutely tied not just to Jesus, but to his people. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind because a lot of times you can fall into that mindset of saying, well, I, you know, I don't really need to go to church. You know, I mean, I can just kind of hang out from time to time if I need to, I mean, because really, I can just love Jesus, read my Bible, and I can be a Christian, and that's all I really need to do. And that's true, but there's so much more than that. Right, And then what we see early on is that it's not just being devoted to Jesus. It's being devoted to his people right? and to understanding that this is an opportunity for us to gather together and for God to do amazing things through the community of faith. And so our devotion is horizontal as much as it is vertical. And so when you think about it in our context, here's how I would try to, to try to land that plane is succinctly and bluntly as possible, is that a lot of times we go to churches thinking about what can a church do for me, right? Can this church meet my needs? And I think that's a totally reasonable consideration, right? I mean, that's a natural question. What happens, though, is that sometimes that can be taken to the extreme, especially in our culture where we're so driven by that consumeristic mentality and people are always trying to sell us stuff, Right, and so we're just constantly consuming things that then all of a sudden we start consuming church. And so part of what I love about this passage and the understanding of being devoted to God's people is that you can kind of put a spin on that and break through a little bit that that tendency to maybe fall too far towards the consumeristic mindset and recognize it's not just about finding a church that meets my needs, but understanding that the church needs me. Right, like that God has gifted you with certain skills, with certain giftings, with, with certain passions, with certain dreams. And so the church needs you. Like, we need you. So you need the local church, and the local church needs you, and your devotion should be driven and directed in that regard, right? That, that's another way that we find this distinctive quality is that we are fully devoted to one another, right? So devotion is marked by Scripture, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Uh, this is a reference to the Lord's Supper, Right, there's some debate if it's more of a casual breaking of bread, but given the context, my, my personal interpretation of that is that this is referencing the Lord's Supper, that Jesus gave this command. Right Again, what's the central theme? It's the theme of salvation right, and what Jesus has accomplished. And so in one of his final meals with his disciples, they, they have this powerful, this incredible symbolism of his body being broken and his, bo- his blood being poured out. And he says, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And we're gonna get a chance to do that here in a little bit as a community of faith, and we are consistently supposed to come together and break the bread to be reminded of Jesus' sacrifice and the promise of his victory over death, the promise of the new covenant poured out in his blood, and we are to gather together and share in that meal, proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Right. So they were devoted towards those tangible expressions of his saving work, right? So it was the breaking of bread. It was prayer. We talk about this all the time, the importance of prayer. But think about the way prayer was, was radically transformed through the gospel, right? They've always been people of prayer. There was always that connectivity to God, but now there is this new access and this new power that came through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, And so we gather together thousands of years later still trying to be anchored and tethered to that that incredible access and that incredible power that has been given to us through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus, right? That we have a name that is above every name that we can come to God with, right? That we have an opportunity to to bring anything that we are facing or carrying and know that God hears this right where we are because of what's been accomplished in Jesus. So we talk about that being a huge focus for our church, Right, that we want to be a church that prays with each other and for each other. It's so why we create these spaces like we do on Sunday mornings for deacons to pray with you. Or when we gather together in our own groups and settings, we emphasize the importance of constantly being devoted to prayer. Right? They're devoted to prayer. Um, they were also devoted to signs and wonders. Did you see that? Right? They continue to actually do the work. Now, when we read this, a lot of times, uh, if you're like me, the, the way that I tend to read through a scripture like that is I start thinking about the miraculous nature of the signs and wonders. And there's no doubt that as you read through the rest of the book of Acts, a lot of the work that they did was miraculous. Um, it, but the emphasis in this passage in particular is not so much on the miraculous nature of the signs and wonders, but more on God's activity, right? That essentially it's, it's a reminder that God was at work He was using the church to authenticate his power and to authenticate this gospel message. And I would tell you, church, he's still at work today, right? And he is absolutely desiring to be at work within us, right? That when we go out, whether it's giving backpacks to a school or feeding people that are hungry or traveling to Cambodia or meeting together in a discipleship group, we should have constant reminders of the signs and wonders of God's activity in our lives. And so we're devoted to that work, believing that God is at work and desiring that work to be utilized in us and through us and around us, right? So they were devoted to that sort of work and the signs and wonders. And then the last one that I really love in terms of what they did is that they were devoted to one another, right? There is a togetherness that's emphasized. And when you read those few verses that talk about the togetherness, it kind of lends itself towards this conversation on generosity, right, that they were incredibly generous. They would sell certain things. Um, they would give to each other as they had need. And, and that's such a, a powerful testimony that really demonstrates their mindset and their hearts, right? This was a church that was not operating a people. that was not operating out of selfish ambition and vain conceits, as Paul describes it in Philippians 2, right? But instead, they considered other people's needs better than their own. And, and that's an incredible philosophy To have, And so a lot of times you can look at these verses and you can really accentuate that call towards generosity. But what I want to put in front of us again this morning is really more of what it says towards unity, right? That they were devoted to being together. Like nothing was going to come between them in that. And the way that they achieved that in a lot of ways was by constantly being aware of the needs of others, right? And putting other people's needs ahead of their own. But I think that's a tremendous reminder for for us today in understanding what does it mean for us to be distinct? right? How do we become a community of people that's unquestionably exceptional? Yes, we could could make a difference and stand out by generosity, but how much more so even in the devotion towards unity? Because we live in a context and we live in a climate right now where unity is so hard to find. And division is so easy to experience. And we see it all around us, and it's absolutely infiltrated the church, right? Across denominations, within, within local communities. Like, and, and that truly is the work of the devil, right? To sow seeds of disunity and division and discord. And so part of what I love about this is, is this reminder that man, we're going to choose each other That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect and we're always going to get along, but we're going to understand perspective and priority. We're going to understand what it means to think for the good of the group and not just my own personal gain, my own personal benefit. We're we're going to strive for that sort of unity and connectivity. They were devoted to being together. Man, you think about what a message that sends in our world today and how distinct and, and exceptional that really would make us look compared to so many other different expressions of community where division is so easy to find and experience. And so it's a pretty impressive list, right, of what it was that they were doing, the activity of the early church that was marked by this devotion, devoted to Scripture and to teaching, to the fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer, to signs and wonders and this unity and this togetherness. But where I really want us to reflect and where I want us to kind of transition our time as we begin to prepare coming to the Lord's table together, is really thinking not just so much about what they did, but who they were, right? Because if you think about devotion and the way that devotion leads to action, um, there's a lot of different things that can fuel your, your commitment towards something, that can, that can kind of stir your devotion towards things. Right? Like, there's a lot of different motivations people have. Like, you can be really devoted to a particular cause or a particular effort because you're angry. Right? Like, you could be really devoted to a certain way of life and to certain decisions because uh, you want to exact vengeance on someone. Or or your, your devotion could be fueled by selfish gain and greed and power. You see what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of things people do with strong uh, representations of devotion where the motives are off. And so what really made this church distinct and different wasn't just what they did, but who they were, right? It was a heart issue. And that to me is what I love about this description, right? In this opening passage uh, that really kind of describes the distinctive qualities of the church. It reminds us of who they were. So like you keep reading and it it describes the fact that they, they just met together every day in the temple courts in each other's homes. They continue to share meals together. And it even talks about that because of their distinctive qualities that they enjoyed the favor of other people, right? Like that the results of what they did and who they were was that they praised God, they enjoyed the favor of others and people were added to their number daily. Like beautiful results that I would say are markers that we're striving for in this church, Right, that that we see it in the overflow of, of our praises towards God and other people being compelled to join in with what God is doing here in our midst. But if you look in the middle of all of those little final verses in that description, what you find is this reference to who they were, that when they were gathering together, they did so with glad and sincere hearts. And I love that. Short and sweet, but a beautiful reminder of who we're called to be as the people of God and what posture and what position our hearts are supposed to be in. We're supposed to gather together with glad and sincere hearts. So the the idea of gladness speaks to joy, right? Extreme delight would be another way to define it. Uh, uh, Sincere is simplicity. Humility, right, would be another way to do it, to, to think about just being content with the simple life. And that's who they were, and that's who we're called to be. And you think about the way in which the early church demonstrated that, right? That we are called to be people that are filled with joy and to have that sort of humility in all circumstances, in all seasons. And I recognize that that's not always easy, but but it is absolutely one of the things that makes the body of Christ unquestionably exceptional. Is to see that no matter what comes our way, we can still find joy. We, we can still find humility and contentment. Like, like That's the testimony of what we find in this early church, that they literally could be thrown in prison and still sing songs of joy. They could have everything taken from them and still be content. They continually demonstrated to one another glad and sincere hearts. That's who they were. Is it who we are? Right. It doesn't matter what we do. If it's emptied and robbed of joy and humility and the contentment that comes with living the simple life, right, if people are truly going to be able to look in on a local church or the larger church, may, may they see glad and sincere hearts, people that can find that motivation to be joyful and to be content no matter what. Now, I recognize that's easier said than done, correct, Right? And that for a lot of us, we go through very hard seasons, overwhelming seasons where joy seems elusive. And so we constantly call each other back to say, How do we do this? Right? How do we achieve this? And that's really what I want us to consider today is to recognize that it's a heart issue, right? That it really requires us on a regular basis to examine our hearts, which to me is an appropriate segue for our time that we're going to spend together today sharing in the Lord's Supper, because whenever we're called to share in the Lord's Supper, we're instructed to examine ourselves thoroughly, right? And that we approach the Lord's table with that sort of reverence and that sort of respect for what his saving work has accomplished in us. And so I have a few final thoughts, uh, but I want us to go ahead and assume that posture, right? That you, you go ahead and start preparing your heart and your mind to, to do that examination of your heart, as we prepare to share in the Lord's Supper together. Um, I do have a few more things to say, but I'm gonna go ahead and invite the deacons that are gonna be available for prayer to move forward and invite the band to come back on stage um, as we kind of shift into that time to to do exactly what's described here in Acts 2, to break bread with one another. And as they assume their various positions here uh, behind me, here's what I want you thinking, right? I want you thinking about this call to have glad and sincere hearts, to, to have that life of joy and humility and begin to ask yourself, is that evident in my life? Like, is that truly in my heart? And if it's not, then why? Like, what, what is it that I might need to surrender? What is it that I might need to, to refocus on? What, what's going on in my heart right now? And if it is there, how do I fuel it? How do I stir it? How do I make it grow even more so? And there's this great quote that I've read to you all before that I think brings this into great clarity uh, because ultimately what we're talking about is an essential part of understanding what it means to respond to this gospel, right? That essentially when you see the heart reference uh, in the scriptures, it's talking about the very essence of your human existence. It, it is the, the center, the epicenter of your thoughts, your emotions, your will. It, it is the defining characteristic of who we are. And so part of what we find when we really evaluate our hearts is, is really what is it that we love? What is it that we desire? This is what helps us understand how our devotion is channeled and motivated. So there's this book that I read several years ago called You Are What You Love, um, and I've, I've read this quote to you before. I'm gonna read it to you again this morning. It was written by James Smith, ironically. Um, not my son, but somebody else. And, and he calls great attention to how we examine the heart, and and just listen to this. He says, think of the heart as the fulcrum of your most fundamental longings, a visceral subconscious orientation to the world. So in this picture, the center of gravity of the human person is located not in the intellect, but in the heart, why? Because the heart is the existential chamber of our love. It is our loves that orient us towards some ultimate end, it is not just that I know some end or believe in some goal. More than that, I long for some end. I want something, and I want it ultimately. It is my desires that define me. In short, you are what you love. So what do you love? What is the desire of your heart? Right, what we find in this gospel is a Savior who is unquestionably exceptional through his sacrifice through his gift on the cross through the promise of the resurrection and so many of us will go through life loving things that will ultimately end that are temporary but when our hearts long for jesus where it's more than just something that we know and more than just something that we believe but something we actually long for and we anticipate the day that we get to be with him forever, and we get to dwell and inhabit in the new earth, when that is the focus of our hearts, I assure you, our hearts will become glad and sincere. And the things that we are called to do, we will do with joy and humility. And the world will look in on us and see a community that is unlike any other. And so, I would invite you this morning, church, examine your heart, see within yourself what it is that you long for, what is the object of your desire, and let us come to this table once again and fix our hearts on Jesus. Let us be reminded of all that he has done for us. Commit ourselves to him and be reminded that this gospel and the community it creates and forges is without question Exceptional. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We love you. We confess there are so many other things in this world that our hearts can begin to desire and long for. But today, Father, we come to this table reminded of your body being broken and the blood being poured out on our behalf and all that that accomplishes for us. And we say thank you. And we respond by giving everything that we are back to you. Let us be devoted to you above all else. and Let us live as a renewed church that is marked by such devotion. So that when the world looks in on us, they see this gospel and they see it to be unquestionably exceptional, Father, because of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. For it's in his precious and holy name that we pray these things. Amen and amen.